I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Continuing our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, this morning we come to chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and I'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 16. This is God's powerful, holy, and inerrant word. Please give it your attention. Then I saw all the toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living that move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. My parents, my brothers and sisters, and all my friends in high school were shocked that I became a pastor. Now, usually when you hear a pastor say something like that, it's because they had some kind of wild and scandalous youth that it's amazing that God's grace can transform somebody to turn them into a pastor. Well, that's not my testimony. My sin was of a much more hidden and subtle sort. The reason I say that my family and friends were also shocked that I became a pastor, it's because, not because I was a party animal, but precisely because I wasn't a party animal. Because I was pretty much a loner growing up. Doesn't mean I was antisocial, I had friends. Doesn't mean I was shy. I was not afraid of people or afraid of social interactions. I was just, and always have been since then, unusually content to be alone. I am a pastor today because of the call of Jesus Christ. Partly because of my weakness in terms of being a bit of a loner. Partly because his power and his strength shines through my weaknesses but also because he's continually transforming me by his grace. I'm always learning and growing in Christ 
being sanctified, and repenting of the sin of selfishness that so often drives my contentedness in being alone. My wife and my son are away this weekend. They're up in Michigan for a family wedding. I get to be home alone all weekend. Now, I don't enjoy it nearly with the same kind of passion and excitement I did when I have five, five kids at home, and it was a real mob at home every time when I come home, but still, I really enjoy weekends alone. I am a master of my schedule. I am the master of my menu. I get to choose whatever I want to eat with no one judging me for it. <laughs> and I get to be the master of the TV remote and watch whatever I want. You see, a lot of my contentedness at being alone is rooted in selfishness. And I need to repent of that. Whatever our weaknesses are, being a disciple of Jesus Christ means a lifelong repentance. You see, one of the few things that Christians and non-Christians will agree upon is that relationships are a really big deal in life. Relationships are huge. Our songs, our books, our movies all reflect the fact that we're starving for companionship. We're obsessed with friendship and that we're rich in things but poor in relationships. In some ways, technology, the internet, social media, these things have come along recently to make it easier for us to be in relationship with people but those relationships tend to be pretty superficial. We may have 500 Facebook friends, but we have very few people in our lives that we can really get real with and go deep with. Our relationships tend to be these days a mile wide and an inch deep. The preacher or Professor Q, or Q as we've been calling him through this study in Ecclesiastes, is an observer of life under the sun. And in his observations, he's had a lot of very depressing things to say about this fallen, cursed world under the sun. And he's limited his worldview to say that he's not going to look above the sun. He's not going to look to God's special revelation, God speaking to us through his word to help him understand the world. He's going to try to understand the world only from his scientific observations of life, society, culture, and our interactions. And as he observed, in spite of all the depressing things he said, you've noticed that he's actually picked up on a few things that are good, things that he calls gifts from this God, the creator, that are given to us that we can find some temporary enjoyment in, and that that's legitimate. And he's talked about wisdom. Wisdom is a gift from God, and And it's good, and we should enjoy that, and it's certainly a lot better than foolishness. He's talked about good food and and good things to drink as being something to enjoy as a gift from God. And he's talked about work in and of itself as being a gift from God, something that we are to enjoy while we live out this life under the sun. And now he adds one more good gift from God, and it's the gift of companionship. And so in this part of Ecclesiastes, he underlines the importance and the goodness of companionship as we live our lives out under the sun. When God created Adam, he looked at Adam and he said, it is not good 
that the man be alone. It's not good. We were designed to be in relationships. We were designed to be in community. It's not good to be alone. Adam sinned against God. He rebelled and the curse came upon us and upon all creation. And as a result of that, relationships are really, really hard. But that doesn't make him any less necessary. In some ways, it almost makes them more necessary. And so he begins by talking about the effect that sin has on relationships. He talks about the enemy of companionship. What is it that makes companionship hard? And it's interesting, he he focuses upon one of these other good gifts. He focuses upon work, and he talks about the relationships of work and how sin makes work so hard. In verses 4 to 6, he says that work is a good, good gift from God, but we've ruined it by the way we pursue our work, that we've ruined it by our motivation for the work that we do. He says, all toil and skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And that's kind of harsh. But if we really think about it, it's all too true as we observe life under the sun. Derek Kidner, a commentator, wrote about this passage. He said, all too much of our hard work is mixed with the craving to outshine or not be outshone. Isn't that really what drives each of us to one degree or another in the work that we do? That we really are in a rat race, as they used to call it. That work is really too often stress-filled competition to impress the boss to look better than your co-workers, to keep your job, or to be successful, whatever that looks like in your vocation. And what Q is saying is envy is driving our hard work. And that's one reason that it's so unsatisfying, and that's one way in which we ruin the gift that God's given us. I mean, be honest with you. Why do you strive to do better at your job? What's really driving it? What's motivating you to do better? I was at our Presbyterian Church in America General Assembly last month, and every year I find that to be a good heart check for me because when I go there, I hear lots of stories of success in ministry, lots of pastors whose churches are flourishing, Lots of statistics about how God is growing his church and how other leaders are being blessed. And it's a good check on me every year. I look at myself and say, how am I reacting to that? Is that drawing out praise in my heart to God for what he's doing through his people? Or does it draw out envy in my heart where I end up feeling not as successful? Well, Q, as he looks at this envy-driven work under the sun, he talks about two disastrous routes that we can take because of our envy on the job. He says the first route we can take is to become a workaholic, and we've already looked at this in a couple of other passages. He describes it in verse 6 as having two hands full of toil. That's his description of the rat race. Two hands full of toil. Being devoted to your work in an idolatrous way trying to seek 
success and status through your work, no matter what the cost, and too often the cost is in the relationships that are so important to life. Look at verse 8. He gives a picture there. And as I read that verse, one name came to my mind immediately the first time I read that verse when I sat down to study it this week. Let me see if the same name comes to your mind. I'll read it to you again. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. That is Ebenezer Scrooge. That's him. Describes Ebenezer Scrooge to a T, doesn't it? He sacrifices all the relationships in his life in the pursuit of success in his work and in riches, and he ends up deeply lonely. A pitiful sight, even as you begin the book. And he doesn't even see it. That's the workaholic at its logical extent. There's a sad postscript to his life there in verse 8. It says, he never even asks, for whom am I toiling? You see, work is meant to be relational. Work is not to be about exalting ourselves. Work is to be about serving others. He never asked, for whom am I toiling? Who are you working for? Then he goes with the other option. That's in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Some people decide, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be a workaholic. Matter of fact, I'm going to avoid work wherever I can and whenever I can. And then you fold your hands, and that's just the typical posture as you sit down in your easy chair. I'm going to fold my hands and let life come to me. And you become a consumer instead of a producer. The book of Proverbs is very hard on sluggards, and so is Q, as he observes the lazy people around him. He says, you're eating your own flesh. Self-cannibalism is an ugly picture, but really, that, isn't that what it is? I mean, you just, you're going to consume and consume and consume until you've consumed everything, including yourself. You're left in poverty and self-destruction. So if those are the two extremes to avoid, either being a workaholic or being a sluggard, what, what, what is he advocating? What, what should be our approach to work? What does a non-envious approach to work look like? And he describes it in verse 5, or I'm sorry, yeah, he describes it as being better is one handful of quietness than these other two. Better than the other two options, workaholic or sluggard, is having one handful of quietness. You see what he's doing? He's, he's contrasting the workaholic who has two hands full of toil. He doesn't have any room for relationships or anything else in his life because his, hands, his two hands are full of toil. And then you've got the sluggard whose hands are empty because he's consumed everything and he's left with nothing but poverty. He says, be content with one handful of quietness. It's a picture of contentment of enjoying work as the gift that it is, but understanding that work is not the end of your life. Work is, your work is not the definition of who you are. It's not the measure of your value. He's presenting a balanced life, a, a life that has work, it has rest, and it has relationships. That's the picture he's given us in this passage. And so he goes on to explain why relationships, why companionship is so important to living life under the sun. 
And he gives us four earthly benefits of compassion, of companionship. And he begins in verse 9 by saying it plain and simple, two are better than one. It's one of those biblical phrases to live by. Two is better than one. He lists four good things that family and friends provide for us to enable us to live our lives under the sun. And he uses, he talks about, as he uses the descriptions here, you get the idea he's talking about a long journey, two people going on a long journey together. And that becomes a metaphor of life for him. People often apply these statements to marriage, and it certainly applies to marriage, but he's intending to be a lot more general than that. He's talking about family relationships, he's talking about friendships, he's talking about working relationships, partnerships, he's talking about companionship on the road of life. The first benefit he lists is that companions make the work that we do more profitable. Companions make the work that we do more profitable. He says, two people have good reward for their toil. The word literally there for reward means wages. In other words, our word is more productive. Our work is more productive. Our mission is more effective if there's someone along with us on the journey to help. Again, he's just making observations of life under the sun. It's always better to have someone help you do the mission or work that you're trying to do than to try to do it alone. Unless that's your six or eight-year-old son, probably. But that, you know, even then, even when you take somebody who's inexperienced and you involve them and have them help you in the work, it may be more work for you, as we often say at the time, but training and mentoring others is an important way of getting their help down the road. And so even that kind of help in your work is still in the long term helpful. You know, that's one reason that I like being a Presbyterian. Presbyterianism, I believe, of course, when you say Presbyterian, you're not describing doctrine per se, you know, in terms of soteriology or doctrines of salvation or God or Jesus. You're talking about your view of church government. Presbyterianism means led by elders. And because of my temperament, I'm very happy to be a Presbyterian because it means that leadership is always team leadership. That there's always brothers alongside of you to lead with you in the work and mission that you do. It's never about one solitary leader and everything being on him. I believe that's what the Bible teaches, but I just love the fact that that's because that's what the Bible teaches it works well in the life of the church. It's always better to have a companion on the way to do the work and mission that you're called to do. Secondly, he says, companions help in times of trouble. Again, Obvious, as you look at life. Verse 10, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. I mean, if you're thinking about two people traveling or anybody traveling back in biblical times, you need to understand, we can't even imagine how dangerous it was to travel long distance in those days. There were no guardrails alongside these dangerous paths. There were no lights. There were no street signs or road signs to help you along the way. There was no AAA or roadside service to help you when you had trouble. If you're traveling alone and you fall off the side of the path or you fall off the cliff or you fall into a pit, you're toast. And so he's making the obvious obvious observation, it's better to have a companion with you so that when you fall, there's somebody there to pick you up. 
you remember that old commercial for a medical alert system? The old elderly lady that's lying on the bathroom floor, and she's piteously crying out, I've fallen and I can't get up. We've turned that into a big joke. It's amazing. Decades later, we're still using that as a joke in our culture. That's what you call an effective commercial. But let me tell you, if you're an elderly person at home alone, that's no joke. That's probably one of their biggest fears in life, is that they'll fall down and there'll be nobody there to lift them up. And so Q is observing that that's one of the benefits of companionship along our journey in life under the sun, is having someone there when we're in trouble. How often do you see people, when things are going well and life is successful and they're getting lots of kudos and life is easy, they dismiss relationships. But then when life falls apart, there's no one there to lift them up. Thirdly, Q says, companions protect against attack. Or fourthly, he says, companions protect against attack. I'm sorry, I skipped uh, the third one. Companions provide warmth in the cold. That's in verse 11. If two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now again, he's using a very mundane aspect of travel in biblical times. When you travel, not only is it dangerous on the path, but when you lie down to sleep, you pull off the road, so to speak, and lay out your pack and, and you go to sleep. It would get cold in those nights. And what they would do to, to share body warmth is they would usually sleep back to back. I mean, usually we think of marriage when we think of this, but they're actually talking about two companions just traveling on the road together. They would sleep back to back so that they wouldn't get too cold at night. Very simple illustration, but to me, I think, again, he's, he's speaking somewhat in metaphor to say this is what you need in life, that you need the warmth of, someone along, of a companion, a friend alongside of you to get through the cold times in life. It's a picture of encouragement and comfort that friends can give. And then fourth, companions protect against attack. In verse 12, he says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Again, it was dangerous to travel in biblical times. And one of the great dangers is that there were no protections along the road. That you were e- If you're traveling alone, you're easy prey for the robbers, the rapists, the wild animals. They traveled in pairs and in groups for that very reason, for safety. There's safety in numbers, and that's still true to this day. There's places that still we won't walk alone because of the danger of the evil around us. It's not good that a man should be alone. That's an abiding principle of human life under the sun. Two are better than one, as Q says. And then he adds this little surprising phrase at the end. He says, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And it's interesting, as you study this passage, you find that there's been a lot of speculative interpretation about what that threefold cord relates to. But I think you've got to begin by saying he's just really making an obvious point like he has about all these other things. He's just saying, hey, if one companion along the road of life is helpful, then two companions is even better. He's just saying that relationships are important, and in some ways, the more relationships, the better. But... Remember, having said all these positive things about companionship, about friends, about relationships in life, he's putting them in the same category as good food, good drink, 
work and wisdom as things that we are to enjoy however, however long we have them, but understand that they ultimately they give no meaning or purpose to life. And it is a big mistake to look to them for meaning and purpose in life because they can't give it in and of themselves. It's all vanity and a striving for the wind. That's always his bottom line. And when it comes to the companions we have in life, that's still the bottom line. He doesn't say why in this passage, but I think the reason, and it's clear to me, the reason is the same as it has been for all the other things he's talked about. It's because of death. Death abolishes relationships under the sun. And that's the point that Q has made all through this book. No matter how much good you might find in this fallen world under the sun, ultimately death comes along and makes it all meaningless and purposeless. He kind of alludes to that in that last little section, verses 13 to 16, and I'm not going to get into that part of the passage very much because it's kind of hard to interpret, but also I think you just need to focus in on his point. In that section, he's telling a story of two kings, one who's an old and foolish king who has stopped listening to his friends, his co-workers, his companions, and so he's become foolish because he's not listened to advice. And then he talks about a young, wise ruler who succeeds him, who comes to the throne after him. Maybe two young rulers, and depending on how you interpret the text. But, it, but he's saying that, uh, that some greater king comes along, and he talks about that king being really popular, but notice how he says death makes it all meaningless at the end. Look, I'll read verse 16 for you again. There was no end of all the people, of all whom he led. He's talking about the second wise young ruler. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. In other words, once he dies and he's gone, everybody moves on. And so death gets the last word. You know the saddest song that I've ever heard? What's the saddest song you've ever heard? The saddest song I've ever heard is Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. Boy, if that song doesn't depress you, you've got no feelings. Let me, let me read to you. And see again, we're going to see how popular music... I mean, life under the sun. There are some wise, enlightened unbelievers who get what Q is saying over and over again, that this is what the world is like. This week, it's the Beatles... They really understood this aspect. Let me read to you some of the lyrics of Eleanor Rigby. See if it doesn't sound like exactly what Q is saying here. Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been, lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. Who is it for? Father Mackenzie, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear, no one comes near. I think that's why I think this is the saddest song ever written. (laughs) Look at him working, darning his socks in the night when there's nobody there. What does he care? All the lonely people, where do they come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Ah, look at all the lonely people. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father Mackenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave, No one was saved. All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Where do they all belong? That's really what Q is saying, is that ultimately death is going to come along and lonely people are going to die. If only there was a way for relationships to endure past death. Wouldn't that make all the difference in the world? If relationships could endure 
past death, everything Q says would be thrown out the window. That's why, again, we say that Q, and Ecclesiastes in general, is given as part of God's word to drive us to the rest of Scripture to get the answer. Because that's what the rest of Scripture is about. The rest of Scripture tells us how we and the relationships in our lives can endure past death, most importantly, our relationship with God. And that's why he, this book, even though it doesn't point to him directly, this book t- is meant to lead us to our eternal companion, the friend who will never leave us. The cross of Jesus Christ was all about relationships. That's what it was about. The cross of Jesus Christ was all about reconciliation. Reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other. That's why he came. During his earthly ministry, he was called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He came to reconcile. And he came to be an eternal friend. That's language he used for ourselves. To me, it seems, I mean, we're talking about the Lord of the universe, the the risen Savior, the Redeemer, but he calls himself our friend because he wants us to understand that our relationship with him is the one that once we have it can never be taken away and that he is the one friend who can meet that entire need for companionship that we have in life. Read to you from John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, that's a commandment we can't keep if Christ had not come and died on the cross and been raised from the dead. And so he goes on to say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. He came to be that one friend who can meet that need entirely and to enable us to be friends to others. That's what the cross was about. Dealing with the sin that divides us from God and the sin that divides us from one another because Christ paid for our sins on the cross and he's given us his spirit to make us able to have eternal friendships with God and with each other. Jesus, our friend, said he will be with us until the end of the age, always. Jesus, our friend, says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus is our ultimate friend in all four ways that Q talked about. First of all, he works with us and enables us to be successful in our mission, whatever that may be. In Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see what he's saying? That's a wonderful promise there. He's saying, I'm going to put a yoke on you, but I'm going to be on the other side of that yoke. And we're going to be yoke fellows together. And we're going to work for the kingdom of God. And we're going to bring the message of the gospel to the world. But I will always be there to work with you. You will never be asked to do anything in the work that I call you to do alone. I will be the stronger 
worker alongside of you who will enable you to do all that I call you to do. And that's why the work he calls us to do, he says it's light, it's easy, it's an easy burden. Not because it's not hard. Some of the things he calls us to do are really hard. But it's light and easy because he's on the other side of the yoke. And that's why we really know what it means to have one handful of quietness. Because we work in the rest of Christ. Trusting in Christ. Secondly, he is our very present help in times of trouble when we fall. He is there every time, every moment when we fall. And in every place when we fall. Physically, when we fall, spiritually when we fall, emotionally when we fall, relational when we fall, morally when we fall, he's there. Because he's purchased us with his blood. We belong to him for eternity. He's always there, really there. Not just in theory, he's really there. John chapter 16, verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's our Yoke fellow that's always there when we fall. Thirdly, he's our source of warmth in a very, very cold world. He has given us his Holy Spirit, and he told us that the Spirit's work is to be our comforter, our helper, when the world gets really cold, when we begin to get really cold in the world. He guides us into all truth, he convicts us of sin, he reassures us of God's grace and of our sonship because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he's our protector against all ultimate harm. We will never be ultimately harmed because Christ is our protector. He's the one to whom we daily pray, deliver us from the evil one. He is the one who in John chapter 10 says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What a friend we have in Jesus. And really, he's the only friend we need. If there was no one else in our life, we could make it through this life under the sun, this long journey, this mission he's called us to ask. We could make it by ourselves because he's the only friend ultimately we need. But praise God, he's given us a lot of other friends. Praise God, he's put us in community. That when he saved us, He gave us the church to labor alongside us, to walk alongside of us, to work alongside of us. Companionship is essential to life under the sun, but it can't provide ultimate meaning and purpose outside of Jesus Christ. You need to know Christ first. You need to be reconciled to God through Christ first, through the gospel. Then you can find meaning and purpose in the relationships in your life and ultimately in your relationship with Christ. And these relationships will last for eternity. As you listen to the lyrics of popular songs, you realize that not only are relationships a big thing in our culture, but you can tell how our culture has made relationships, especially romantic relationships, an idol. And that's what happens with idols. You go to idols in order to get what you should get from God. You go to to a romantic relationship in order to get the meaning and purpose and satisfaction in your life that only God can ultimately give. 
So the question for us as Christians, is that now Christ has become Lord and he's our Savior and he's the, the ultimate relationship and the first priority of our lives. How do we enjoy the relationships of our lives without letting them become idols in our lives? How do we do that? Well, we do it the same way that we enjoy any other good gift from God. We enjoy them the same way that we enjoy sports or hobbies or good food like apple pie or a beautiful sunrise or sunset. We enjoy them for what they are, for what God created them to be, ultimately a reflection of him and his love for us. That when we enjoy them in thankfulness, that ultimately these are good gifts from him and ultimately they point to him if they're good at all. It's no secret to me why Pilgrim's Progress is one of the greatest books ever written next to the Bible because it's such a beautiful picture of what relationships in Christ look like under the sun. You remember the stories about Christian, the main character, and he finds his ultimate meaning and purpose in life when he comes to the cross and the burden falls off his back and falls into the empty tomb and it's at that point that he begins the difficult, very difficult journey to the celestial city. But one of the the geniuses of that book is how it portrays how we need the church, how we need Christ-like friends in our lives to enable us to make the journey, that that's part of his enabling of us, is to put Christ-like friends in our lives. With Christian, first it was the evangelist, who pointed him to the truth. And then it was help. And then when help, I believe, was martyred and then faithful was sent along and then ultimately he finishes the journey with hopeful. And they all represent Christ-like relationships that help you on the journey to get to where God, by his grace, is leading you. And together, Christian and his friends, together they endure the trials and temptations of the slough of despond Vanity Fair and Doubting Castle. You see, it's not good when we're alone. We need to be encouraged and we need to encourage. We need to be comforted and to comfort. We need to be held accountable and to hold each other accountable. And we need to be prayed for and to pray for others. We need to have each other's back. I want to close by reading some comments from a sermon that Phil Riken preached on this passage, and I just thought he summarized the whole text well. This is how he applied it. He said, we get knocked down by life's trials and troubles. Sometimes somebody pushes us, and sometimes we just trip over our own two feet. But either way, we end up on the ground. We try something and end up failing. Relationships get broken. Financial difficulties make us feel desperate. Against our own better judgment, we fall into grievous sin. If we were all alone, we might go down and stay down. But we are not alone. A brother or sister in Christ is there to lift us up with the words of encouragement, to remind us of the love and mercy of God, and to help us rise again. There is spiritual warmth in going through life with other believers. It's easy to grow cold in the Christian life, to become numb to the work of God, and eventually to freeze almost to spiritual death. But when we are growing cold, the heat of another Christian can warm us up. The prayer of an elder or deacon, the verse that a friend shares from Scripture, an exhortation to turn our hearts back to God, these are some of the sparks that God uses to keep the fire burning. 
The world is full of temptation, the desire of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Satan is always prowling around like a lion to devour us. When it comes to facing these spiritual dangers, two are better than one. If we live close with other believers, there is always someone to stand with us in the fight and to cover us with the protection of prayer. Two really are better than one. Better for work and for warmth. Better in times of woe and of warfare. But for us to have this advantage, we need to live in close fellowship with the people of God. Praise God for our salvation and praise God for the church. Let's pray. Father, as we continue on our journey to that celestial city by your grace, we thank you for your sustaining grace, your strength you give us, the guidance and wisdom you give us by your spirit. And we thank you for our Christian brothers and sisters, those that are evangelists, those that are faithful, those that are helpful, those that are hopeful who come alongside us, lift us up, encourage us, challenge us, hold us accountable, and point us towards Christ. May we be that for others as we look to others to do that work of grace for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.